Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Brethren, this is the Word of God. I pray with all of my heart we might hear His voice in it. <clears throat> we began last week a study in the issue of modesty, Christian modesty. <clears throat> to my knowledge, growing up, I never heard a message on this, at least in the churches that I was in, on occasion mention of it might be made when I was very young by some of the older men, and it was normally regarding some of the things that some of the younger people were wearing. And I never really understood what was the big fuss all about. What's the big deal? What's the problem? So we want to answer that question. What's the deal? Is there a deal at all? Does the Bible make an issue of this, uh, this subject? <clears throat> now our first task in considering the important issue of modesty is defining the term accurately. That's where we began last week. We've seen that modesty has several definitions. It, is <clears throat> it means showing a moderate estimation of one's own talents, abilities, and value can mean a disinclination to call attention to oneself. It means free from showiness or ostentation. It means moderate or limited in size, quantity, or range. And it can mean propriety in dress or in speech. We can cover all of those things. So it's very important for us to understand that modesty is not simply a matter of sensual or licentious clothing. Now that may be involved. <clears throat> but it's a state of mind or disposition that expresses a humble estimate of one's self before God. Modesty like humility is the opposite, the very opposite of boldness or arrogance, haughtiness, ostentation. It doesn't seek to draw attention to itself or to show off in an unseemly way. Now we took the time to consider the words modest, shamefacedness and sobriety which Paul used or uses in 1 Timothy 2.9 and we have drawn our definition from the meaning of those words. <clears throat> Therefore, we have something of a lengthy but I, I trust and believe an accurate definition. Christian modesty is the inner self-government the inner self-government rooted in a proper understanding of oneself before God, which outwardly displays itself in humility and purity from a genuine love for Christ rather than in self-glorification 
or self-advertisement. <clears throat> now, having defined modesty in this way, we then considered the warranty, uh, the warranty, the warrant for modesty. See, there's going to be a war between my brain and my tongue here this evening. And I know it runs winning for the moment. <clears throat> We have concluded that modesty is first rooted in the holy character of God. And that's what I want us to remember from last week. Modesty is not simply an issue of somebody's opinion of clothing. The whole issue of modesty begins with who and what we are as God's children. And that is rooted in his holy character. So the issue of modesty begins with the holiness, the unspeakable purity of God. <clears throat> now next we saw that modesty is rooted in God's eternal purpose. God's sovereign and eternal purpose is to make His people like Jesus Christ, from whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of His Son. Salvation is not only a matter of our sins being forgiven, but the astounding fact that God is, has purposed to take these vessels of dust, to take us in our weakness, in our sinfulness, in our rebellions, and to give us new hearts. And to give us a love for what He loves. And a hatred for what He hates. And ultimately, to make us like His Holy Son, Jesus Christ, who is holy. And thirdly, <clears throat> we saw that modesty was rooted in God's commandments for moral purity. Especially going to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. God has commanded moral purity. He's commanded it. This is not an option. It's not something that, well, among the many choices out there, uh, this is one that you can choose if you so wish. Now that's the way our I'm okay, you're okay society likes to think. Oh, that's okay for you. That's fine. I'm just not into that. This is not a matter of personal preference. This is the command of the Creator of heaven and earth. And it, what he, and it is what He has called us to. So, uh, those at least make up the warrant for modesty. It is a biblical doctrine. Now, whether you agree with my conclusions or not, uh, you must be Berean enough to discover. You must take the time to study the Word of God and see whether the conclusions that I have reached are biblical. But my point in beginning where I have is to show that I think it is incontrovertible that there is a doctrine of inner self-government in God's children that must ultimately manifest itself in an outward purity. 
And that includes our dress. Now finally, in our uh, review here this evening, we considered that modesty is primarily a problem of the heart. Once again, this is not just a matter of personal opinion. While that may enter in at certain levels, we may not be able to filter and screen it out, even with the best of our intentions. But nonetheless, it is primarily a problem of the heart, while being both a male and a female problem. The few times I heard this subject mentioned when I grew up, it always seemed to have been dumped uh, in the women's laps, so to speak, as their problem when the whole issue of modesty is rooted directly in the problem with men and several problems. First of all, their fallen condition. But secondly, the very fact that they've been commanded by God to guide their homes, their wives, their children in the ways of God. And therefore, they must, in their homes practice, establish and practice a biblical modesty. And we noted that that's not going to happen generally. There are exceptions, but that's not going to happen generally unless the elders of the churches take the issue seriously and instruct God's people regarding this matter. Otherwise, far too often, it ends up simply landing on someone as, well, that's, you know, their hang-up. That's just their own issue over there. They're real uptight about all this. Brethren, I, I, uh, I tell you that th- I am not exaggerating in this. Uh, in fact, it would be difficult for me to exaggerate in this. I have uh, announced to you before, and I must say to you again, I hear from people all over the country from faraway states that call and say, where can we find a church that we can bring our sons and our daughters to in a good conscience? We don't want our young daughters exposed to the immodest dress that is common. And I'm talking about common among deacons and elders' daughters. And they say, where can we bring our sons? We don't want them coming to church to check out the babes. We want a place where we come and worship the Holy God. Have our minds and our hearts set on Him. Brother and I had a long conversation with a family that called me Thursday evening. Things have become so bad in many places that families spend years going to every single assembly they can find in the hopes of finding a place. Many of them even give up on doctrine. They'll sacrifice doctrine for a place where they can at least bring their their young sons and daughters in and not have them exposed to acres of skin. This poor family, blessed they are. And I enjoyed my conversation with them. But they were saying, are we crazy? 
Is there something wrong with us? It, what's, I mean, we're not trying to act like we're better than anybody. We just can't believe what we're seeing, what we're exposed to. And I, you could hear the, un, the remarkable relief in their voices when I said, No, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. When God's people have to say, Am I crazy? Because I don't want to go in a place that says it's of God, but there's such immodesty there that I cannot keep my mind focused on worship. Brethren, something is desperately wrong. As John Calvin wrote regarding this issue of modesty being a a problem of the heart, it says, Yet we must always begin with the dispositions. For where debauchery reigns within, there will be no chastity. It is an inner self-government. Where ambition reigns within, there will be no modesty in the outward dress. Undoubtedly, the dress of a virtuous and godly woman must differ from that of a strumpet. And the very tragic part of it is that many, many women who, who probably, in, in the best frame that I can paint it, many simply have no earthly idea what effect their clothing has on men. I tend to think more of them know than don't. But I think that many have simply never been taught and have never even been urged by their elders to sit down and make it a matter of godly prayer and study. Calvin concludes, If piety must be testified by works, this profession ought also to be visible in chaste and becoming dress. Chaste means pure. Pure. As we will see in the coming weeks, clothing is a language. It speaks. Clothing is a language. And it speaks. Very often, I'm afraid that it says things that some people do not realize. <clears throat> Now, tonight we want to consider the origin of clothing and the necessity of modesty as our first point. And finally, the proper motives for modesty. The origin of clothing and the necessity of modesty is our first head and the motives, proper motives for modesty. Our text this evening began in Genesis, speaking of Adam and Eve after creation. It tells us that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, brethren, this is a biblical terminology. Unfortunately, we're either so dull because we're bombarded by it 24 hours a day that it means nothing to us, or 
we don't even want to use some of these words in company because somehow or another the word's bad. Naked. I remember when I was a child, giggling over that word. Well, it's not a word to giggle over. We need to grow up and realize it is an, it is in the proper context, fine. There are a few contexts where it's fine. You want to be unclothed in the shower. But it would be improper to be uncovered in public. And that is something that our society, our culture, rails against with every fiber of its being. Now, we want to consider first when there were no clothes. There was a time when uh, there were no clothes racks, there were no stores, uh, that you could go in and spend hours uh, looking at the colors and the sizes and all that stuff regarding clothing. It was a very brief period of time. But, as Genesis 25 tells us, <clears throat> that the man and his wife were not ashamed. Martin Luther had an absolutely exquisite quote regarding this, and, and I must confess that we live in such a day, and many of us have reacted against wicked terminology and, and images so strongly that sometimes we've become so holy that we don't want to hear something that has certain words in it. And Luther was one not to shy away from bold language, so I didn't bring the quote. But he did say this, If we had lived at this time, Eve could have sat in this particular condition in our company and no one would have been uncomfortable. We wouldn't have been uncomfortable and she wouldn't have been uncomfortable. Why? Because nakedness was, past tense, was good. God made them this way. They were not ashamed because there was nothing shameful. Now, why am I taking the point, or taking the time to begin with this point? And it is this. And parents, this is vital for you when you teach your children. Children, God made your body. Your body is good. And we must never, when we are teaching our children, we must not give them the idea that somehow or another that there's something wrong with their bodies, because God made them, and they are good. What is wrong is the hearts of men and women, Amen. and what they do with their bodies in a sinful world. So, we do not say, oh, you must cover up the body, because there's something wrong with it, or it's deformed. We cover it, because it is good but we, by nature, are sinful. It's a very important point. Now, <clears throat> it tells us in Genesis 1.31 that God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Though Adam and Eve wore no clothing, they felt no sense of public disgrace or humiliation, and this was very good because God created them this way. This was natural. What we are facing today is something that now has become unnatural because of sin. 
Unfortunately, there are many today that want to go back to this condition. They say, well, this is the state of innocence. This is what we all ought to go back to. No, it doesn't work. Because when this is said in chapter 2, it is prior to Adam and Eve's plunge into sin. And that's what makes the difference in all of this. Matthew Henry observes, I think this is a wonderful statement, regarding the fact that there was no shame between Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, Those that had no sin in their conscience might well have no shame in their faces, though they had no clothes to their backs. And that's right. That was the whole point. There was nothing sinful. The body wasn't sinful. The condition wasn't sinful. So then, what transformed good nakedness into something shameful? And why did God Himself cover man's body? That brings us to our second thought under this heading. When God gave clothes... Nakedness was good until Adam and Eve rebelled against God. At that point, sin entered and shame followed. Tells us in Genesis 3, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Aprons. In other words, they made little loincloths out of leaves. And he said, this is what Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. And listen to his words. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. It is not simply a matter of historical narrative that Genesis 2 says they were not ashamed. Now they are ashamed. Why? Has the body been deformed because of sin? No. The heart has. The mind has. And now men see themselves in a way that they did not see themselves before. Adam and Eve saw themselves their sense of rebellion against God and their sense of knowing that they were now separated from Him brought them to shame. And they recognized in their own hearts that they had lost something before God. And they had. They had lost their purity. They had lost their godlikeness as far as their holiness and chasteness went it was now defiled they could not think properly about themselves sin is deforming and it deforms the thinking first we think wrong because we are sinful and here's the first example of it. They could no longer think rightly about what they uh, they were no longer uh, 
They could no longer think rightly about what had been fine. Nothing to be ashamed about. Now, as a result of their fall into sin, God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness. If you look with me, chapter 20, uh, excuse me, uh, Genesis 3, verse 21, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. They made coats of skins and clothed them. The knowledge of their sin transformed their experience of good nakedness into stinging and humiliating shame. Blushing and disgrace entered into history. But in His great mercy and grace, God provided a gracious covering. What did Adam and Eve deserve at that moment? God's judgment and destruction. But God in mercy clothed them, covered them. This was an act of mercy because now in a sin-cursed earth with briars and brambles that were going to now grow and uh, the poison ivy and things like that that would now be uh, no longer something that uh, men and uh, women could live in harmony with and all of the things that would make living without clothing comfortable, we now enter into an entirely new time in history where God provides clothing. He provided clothing. He covered them. It was for protection. It was for preservation. And it was for modesty. Now, God used a literal event to teach us a spiritual truth. Here in this simple act, God also gave us a glorious picture of what He would do for sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam, in the shame of his sin, needed covering. And we, in the shame of our sins, stand in need of a clothing before God. God in His mercy gives those who repent of their sins and believe on Christ the robe of righteousness. Even the very terms of our salvation are pictured in the Scripture in the symbol and the terms of clothing. The works of Adam's hand didn't cover him enough. God's mercy and grace covered him as he needed. It is not insignificant. Though Adam covered his loins, God covered him from his neck to below his knees. The work of Adam's hands was not acceptable to God either spiritually from his works righteousness, nor was acceptable nor was it acceptable, acceptable physically. That was his nakedness. Only the covering that God Himself provided was, was sufficient for both. 
Now, while Adam covered his loins, the Lord covered Adam's body. Now, we don't have any snapshots of uh, Adam and Eve's coats, but the word translated coats here is translated every other place that I could find in the Old Testament as tunics or robe. And that was a tunic-like garment that went below the knees. It went from the neck to below the knees. Now, God then was the very first clothes designer. He's the one that designed them. He's the one that gave them. And He did it again later on. God not only gave clothes to Adam and Eve, He gave clothes to the priesthood. Exodus chapter 28, verse 3 says, And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. God did not say, Come as you are. He said, Those that minister to me must be covered a particular way. And, uh, and once again, the Lord used their clothing in a symbolic way to speak of many things. And we don't have the time to go into all of that. But those that have studied the tabernacle, like Brother Ed and others, and have spent much time looking at all of these issues, realize that there is great symbolic significance in all of this. But we don't want to lose sight of what was going on practically. God said, you may not come before me, you are not consecrated, except you be covered this way. To minister to me, you must be consecrated. They, the priests even had to wear linen breeches under their robes, so that when they went up upon the altar, they did not expose themselves to the holy altar of God. or I should say expose themselves on the holy altar of God. Exodus 28 goes on to say, And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and a broidered coat, a mitre and a girdle. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron thy brother and his sons, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. So the Lord covered the priests in the same way. It's the same word. And uh, this was a long garment that went well below the knees. As a matter of fact, uh, this one actually went to the ankle. And when God Himself wore clothes, is the next thing we want to consider. Adam and Eve were clothed by God. The priesthood was clothed by God, and Christ, the God-man, came in the flesh. What did He wear? Where His garments are, are mentioned, they were even gambled for at His crucifixion. Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish Christian who wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, wrote this, <clears throat> As the garment which our Lord wore, and those of which He spoke, to His apostles, are designated by that name, we conclude that it represents the well-known kutonet. The kutonet, that's the Hebrew word, 
which formed his inner garment must have been close-fitting and descended to his feet, since it was not only so worn by teachers, but was regarded as absolutely necessary for any, anyone who could publicly read or targum the Scriptures. Targum meant interpret the Scriptures. And when someone did a targum, the Scriptures were read and then an interpretation was made. And there were those who were readers and those who would targum the Scriptures. And what's being said, or any function in the synagogue, once again, the whole concept of when we come together to worship the Most High God, even the Lord Himself covered Himself. Again, why? Because there's something wrong with the body? No. Because there is something wrong with men's hearts. We are sinful. And that is the issue. We can even go to the heavenly visions in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 11. And we read this. And brethren, this is an extremely abbreviated Look at these things. There are many, many, many passages which speak of garments and attire and apparel and robes and all of these types of things. <clears throat> but what we have in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. The saints in heaven, once again, are covered. Now, we've got a slightly different situation here. And I've often puzzled as to why there are robes in heaven. But I, I think with all of my heart, these symbolize the purity of heaven rather than giving men the idea, as all the pagan religions have, that heaven is kind of like uh, a great brothel up in the sky. The Muslim religion, for those who do great deeds and die in the service of Allah, can be guaranteed of a heavenly harem. Well, who wouldn't give his life here for a heavenly harem in the flesh? And the Greek ideas and the Roman ideas of the heavens were very often wicked and immoral. And what we have set before us once again is symbols of purity. Purity. There's no sin in heaven. But the visions that we're given are not for us to sit and go, Oh, I can't wait to get there because we can doff all of our duds. But that it is a holy and a pure and a righteous, a good place. For we are not assailed with those images anymore. The very word robes here, stole, means that it is a long, flowing robe. Now, now why spend all of this time with this kind of a survey? Well, first of all, to show that God is the giver of clothes. This whole idea has been cast off. I have a book, and uh, I, I don't like to quote books, 
sometimes by secular sources, because I especially don't want people who get the tapes to think that I'm in agreement with what the books are about, necessarily. But uh, by a secular writer, a woman who uh, makes no claim whatsoever to Christian principles, she said, for years the idea reigned in the West. For years the idea reigned in the West that the reason we have clothes is because of lust and shame. But we don't believe that anymore. Now, you say, well, what's the point? Lots of people don't believe it. Brethren, that's why our society dresses the way it does. It doesn't dress because of a moral issue. It dresses for comfort or it dresses for sex appeal. Why in the West? Because the West was under the influence of the scriptures of Almighty God. Whether people even believed them or not, this was the mindset, the worldview. The belt and shown. The worldview. People thought in a biblical pattern. They wore clothing because God gave clothing to cover the body when men fell into sin. Well, we don't believe those old-fashioned ideas anymore. They're just attached to guilt. Those are the things that these Neanderthals like to dredge up and make us all feel guilty about so that we can't wear what we want to wear and do what we want to do and look like what we want to look like. We're all on the psychologist's couch because of these foolish old ideas. Read the literature. In Russia, one of the first things they would do with Christians was put them in mental wards. Because they said the people that live this way have to be crazy. That will come here unless the Lord in His mercy keeps it from happening. All of this, brethren, is to say that a biblical worldview understands the covering of the body for the sake of modesty. For the sake of, number one, not causing others to sin or sinning ourselves. We are not to promote that which is impure, but that which is pure and right and good. We are to preserve purity. Wall it up. Defend it. Exalt it. Not act like it's something we ought to be ashamed of or that it's a problem that we have. No, brethren, from Genesis to Revelation, the images given to us in Holy Scripture, when God gave clothes, when God Himself gave the priesthood clothing, when He Himself wore clothing, and when He clothes the saints in heaven. It is with a covering. He didn't give Adam and Eve a fur bikini. It didn't, it didn't work. And, and I don't say that lightly. It was inappropriate. It would have been inappropriate. He covered them from their neck to their knees. Now, 
Let's consider the proper motives for modesty this evening. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.